Welcome to the Weird Learning Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Tracy Dix and Dr. Alex Patel. Today's episode, Why Weird Learning? Or, What's in a Name? Hello everyone, so it's Tracy here today on a very, very hot summer's afternoon with my friend Alex. Hello! (laughs) So today we are talking about everything weird. Why we're called weird learning, yeah, what it means, where it's going to go in the future, and why we've decided to call it weird learning. So Alex, technically you've come up with the name, so why weird learning? Well, I started off by, you know, looking around at the different names, things like innovation learning, dynamic learning, etc, etc. Um, and you know what, a lot of these are already taken. What a so surprise. then I thought, you know, I want this to be something that really represents me, that's something that's authentic. And I remembered back to high school where, you know, I got picked on a little bit. I was, you know, a bit of an awkward person. But my friends at the time would often say to me that I was weird but nice. So part compliment, part mm, great. Or is that a double-edged insult, like (laughs) nice? Because you know how in university they always say never use the word nice, it doesn't describe anything. So what what were your schoolmates trying to say about you? Like, you're nice. What's, you know, vanilla? Vanilla's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So when I was at school, I was just, you know, a bit quirky. I had, you know, my own interests. And I guess I was starting to develop into my own person at that point. Mm. So that's why I got that kind of, you know, How dare you develop into your own person? The other interesting thing was people would buy me the birthday presents, candles and wind chimes over and over again. And I don't know why. Was that kind (laughs) of, was that nice gift shop? type merchandise do you oh, think yeah, lovely, lovely, do you think but... it went do you think it went with your identity as a nice no actually oh okay <laughs> but people obviously connected it was it weird did you say wind chimes what was the other thing you said candles candles okay hmm i don't know if that goes with the territory of weird i don't think so i think it goes with the nice safe gift to buy for someone <laughs> <laughs> possibly well basically the reason for the name is i thought i'm actually really proud of my uniqueness and mm. differences nowadays so i just wanted to own that name yes and guess what it hasn't been taken until now <laughs> it hasn't been taken and also you know like i like the weird about you i great, like the quirkiness great. about you so that's really interesting what you said about, you know, your school identity and your classmates calling you weird but nice. And it's almost like the kind of nice bit was like a token sort of, but you fit in, don't worry, you're not weird, weird. Like, you know, you're not weird. It's not like you're an outcast. You're still, we still like you. But also, why should you have cared that those people liked you? I was desperate to fit in. I had very low self-esteem. And most people are... I'm going to get into a dark place here this... if <laughs> So most people are concerned about fitting in, aren't they? Especially when you're at school. Yes. Like, so if you're not the popular girl or boy or popular person at school, then you want to be friends with the popular person at school. And what is it about that? So thinking about coming to university then, people do want to fit in don't they, when you go to university. But it's also so much about finding yourself. And I think it's it's such an incredible opportunity to let go of the identity that we are sort of branded with at school. So, you know, if you're at school, people have been like, oh, do you remember Alex Udall? She was weird, but nice, wasn't she? (laughs) And like, that's what they say about you. 
But then when you start university, you can go, well, now I can shake off like what other people think about me. And it's an opportunity for me to start afresh and like build my own self-image, you know, become whoever I want to be mm. and find myself. Yes. Like I yes. believed I was going to find myself at university and like try lots of new things and stuff like that. So, okay, then in terms of like academic attainment, then what would you say is the difference between school and coming to university? In terms of academic attainment? Yeah. So, you know, like, so if you were top of your class all the time, say. I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Neither was I most of the time, actually. Although I did, I went through a spell of being top in English in primary school for like one school year, I think. Although funnily enough, my science grades were actually higher than my English grades, but I still topped the class in English until uh, someone, like there was this girl from like one of the other classes kind of joined our class and then she was better at English than I was. So I was kind of, yeah, so it's it's very fluid though, isn't it? So, you, you know, your kind of position or your status relative to other people can change when you're in a different setting. So you were at school and now, you know, if you're kind of looking to go to university and thinking about starting university, you're coming to a different setting. And, you know, I think it's really interesting to think about like the difference in environment from school to university, which is, you know, very international um, kind of community. And not just international, but actually just within our own country, you meet people from different areas, Mm -hmm. uh, different races, different classes you know Mm -hmm. so people who've had very very different um, school lives up till that point Mm -hmm. yeah so I think the idea of you know how do you how does everyone learn and what kind of experiences is everyone bringing with them to university there's a huge variety isn't there Alex it's a great opportunity to to kind of find yourself try out new things get to know lots of different people and really sort of expand your horizons. Maybe that sounds a little bit corny, <laughs> but it no, is. It is, it is. Yeah. And one of the great things is everybody is starting from the same point in that everyone has arrived at uni mm-hmm. um, needing to make friends. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you've shown up at a school, you know, come in halfway through a year, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, and everyone's already formed their own niches and cliques mm-hmm. and friendship groups. Mm-hmm. Everybody's arriving with that, you know, desire to find out about people and make friends. Yeah, so I think that's the comforting kind of thought that you can take with you is, you know, everyone who's starting the first year, especially, you know, they're all in the same position of, you know, having to buy their bed sheets, get their pots and pans, figure out where, you know, one hall of resident is in relation to where you need to go for your next seminar and tutorial and all that. And so I think there would be great empathy when you come on campus because everyone's been there before, they've been in that position, and hopefully they'd be willing to help if they can. Although, you know, very often people can be on a campus for three years and still not know the building that you're asking about because it's such a huge place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Okay, so I, I guess we've kind of deviated from why weird learning. So when I saw the name, Alex, I also kind of thought about, okay, so that's weird, like the quality, but also it kind of reminded me of a visual pun of like wiring, wired learning, which I really liked. Yes, yes. Do you want to talk a bit about that? <laughs> so if we're talking about wiring of the brain, mm-hmm. it's really quite exciting. So my background is in neuroscience. 
and I used to do lectures on some of this stuff. In the past, people used to believe that, you know, your brain was hardwired. Mm -hmm. You couldn't learn new things, you know, once you reached a certain point in your life. But we found out that that's not the case. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of, they call it plasticity. Yep. Neurons reconnecting in different ways. Old information perhaps being lost with new connections being made. New ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're coming to university, you can start developing your thinking processes further. So we might be talking about critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So what does critical thinking mean to you? <laughs> oh, that just, is... Just, a, you know, a one-sentence answer. <laughs> that is a very big question, Alex. Right, critical, <laughs> I was going to go with a simple one. <laughs> critical thinking is kind of making sense of the information that you have access to and applying your own experience and perspective to it so you kind of so you're given a whole bunch of evidence or like a whole bunch of opinions you know for example in scholarly research and stuff and the question for you then is what do you make of all of this like so where do you stand on some of these issues like what is your point of view yes so you know i said a, a simple answer i was simply going to say it's asking <laughs> questions <laughs> so you shouldn't have asked me you should have answered your own question yes yes so the interesting thing is when this was kind of discovered, you know, this idea of plasticity and the brain rewiring itself. Mm -hmm. So as I said, people previously thought, you know, everything was fixed, couldn't teach an old dog new tricks, couldn't learn new things. But it was studies on how songbirds learn to sing that demonstrated this. Well, that is a niche topic if ever I heard one. It is. I used to teach on this <laughs> subject, so I find it very exciting. But this generated the first evidence in that canaries, it's only the males that sing, apparently, and during the mating season, they learn a set of songs. Mm. So with canaries, each year, they learn a new set, they adapt them. Mm -hmm. And what you see in the brain is that new neurons are born they wow. grow just being created they just are from, created from nowhere you can teach an, you old, can bird teach how to an sing. old bird how to sing i have hope yet yeah <laughs> so what's interesting actually is that these new neurons make lots of different connections they kind of go crazy and there's lots of different feelers being put out but then you get a period of pruning okay these, so what's pruning these extra branches that the ones that aren't useful basically are cut out oh. so you end up sticking with the really strong useful connections the things that get something done in the real world so that's really interesting isn't it because i come from a literary background i did a phd well i did several degrees in english and we've got this saying that's probably quite well known to any of you use it or lose it yes and yes. so what you've just described alex about the neural pathways what do they do connect they, together they connect together but then do they lose their connections or something if you don't lose it yes you... i think in different parts of the brain it might work a bit differently mm -hmm. i was going to use breathing as an example but we use that quite a lot so that's not quite right yeah. but you know the idea of you know once you've learned how to ride a bike you can always do that you can always go back to it so there might be some things to do with movement in particular which mm. end up being quite hardwired probably things to do with balance i would imagine so when you say hardwired so are you saying that as in they don't change as much they don't basically. change as much okay well so i've got something interesting to add to this actually slightly randomly i've been practicing my back bridges you're you on the to floor describe that for me so you're lying on the floor and your arms are like right by your ears and your feet are on the ground and then you lift yourself up it's a fairly popular kind of gymnastics and yoga move 
And I used to be able to do that when I was a kid, no problem. And I used to do gymnastics. I've come back to it after many years off. And in my mind, I am still my 14-year-old self who should be able to like bend over backwards and then touch the floor into a bridge. But I did try it once and kind of fell over. So now I'm back to pushing up off the ground. And the first time I did it, after many, many years, it caught my breath. <laughs> because of the strain, you know, because I hadn't done it for so many years. Yeah, so I think it depends on the activities, but I think, yeah, that neural pathway that I created when I was 14 needs a lot of rejuvenating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if any of you are lucky enough to do a course which requires statistics, that's, that is an example of something you can do. Well, for me, myself, you know, I've done about five mm. different lots of training on statistics. And because I don't use it in between, I forget it and have to almost yeah. relearn it each time. But the positive thing about um, everything you've said so far, though, is there is always hope, isn't there? There is always neuroplasticity. If you can't do something now or you can't get to grips with the concepts, you can't understand something, you can't do anything, you can't do something, you can always train your brain to do it. And so, yeah. with practice, it also becomes easier, doesn't it? So I think that's yes, quite a yes. good takeaway. It becomes easier, definitely. I'd agree with that. Okay, so if you find that you're enjoying this podcast and, you know, we're coming up with interesting questions or making you think about things, then there's a couple of things you could do. You could, of course, subscribe to this because that means that the next podcast that becomes available, you'll find out about straight away. You won't miss anything. You could recommend it to some of your colleagues, friends, anyone you think would be interested. Write a review or, you know, just simply like it. Yeah. And that'd be really good because then it means that we can help more people, which is what we really want to do. Yes. So the other reaction I had, Alex, when I saw Weird Learning was it kind of looked to me quite sort of as if it was a nod to like Celtic or kind of quirky and it reminded me of the Canterbury Tales, which I studied at school and my teacher kind of reading everything in, is it Old English? Is it Old or Middle English? It's one of those. It's not really my area of expertise, so I'm not sure about that. I'll let you take over now, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it appealed to me because of the history and the additional meanings that it has. So nowadays, obviously, we've got weird, unusual, mm -hmm. strange, mm -hmm. <laughs> other positive <laughs> mm -hmm. descriptions. But it also used to have a slightly different meaning. So Wikipedia tells me that it comes from <laughs> uh, <laughs> both a kind of Anglo-Saxon origin and a Viking Norse origin. Mm -hmm. And it used to have slightly different connotations. So it might mean kind of a little bit supernatural, a little bit uncanny, mm. looking to the future, being mm. able to predict the future. And okay. I quite like that element because it ties in with, you know, what we want for this. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to add in a bit of a public service announcement at this point, just because of your reference to Wikipedia. And so <laughs> at university, your lecturers and tutors are going to tell you time and time again not to reference Wikipedia because it's not a reliable source. It's not completely that it's not a reliable source, but you can't ascertain the reliability of it because anyone can contribute to Wikipedia. But having said that, for like a kind of initial understanding of a concept, there's no harm in having a look 
just so that you know it gives you a clue and then you can mm. follow the references at the end of a Wikipedia citation to see what the evidence is for a certain yeah. claim. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of add that caveat in as to why we're using it here and yeah but and then why I laughed. <laughs> and now we can get back to the fun stuff. So coming back to what you said about looking to the future. Yeah, so it, it just reminded me of something very rustic and being quite grounded to our roots to nature i mean i have no celtic associations whatsoever but in this time of climate change and a kind of shaking up of you know the way we live we are having to really rethink the way that we live our lives nowadays mm. and look towards a future that is that is more sustainable and being at university and the type of research that takes place at university has a huge role to play in that kind of contribution Yes, um, yes, to the global community. So how can we sort of bring that kind of intuition to, to our future, like determining the future? So you were talking about seeing into our future. And I'm not sure I feel particularly as if I can see into my future. I don't think I'm that in tune <laughs> with my kind of intuition and stuff like that. But we do have the power to determine our future, don't we? We certainly do. And so this, the starting point to that really is kind of thinking about what we want so gaining clarity on what it is we want in our future like how we envisage things and that gives us the first steps to the actions we need to take in order to get there and of course none of this is predetermined it's not static it can change over time but it's sort of a yes yeah, it's, it's a sort of calling into our intuition to tell us like what our next step is and then as you act on certain things you know whatever it is it might be that action brings further clarity. Mm, yeah, yeah. So students starting university might want to think about um, where they want to be at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean career, but you might want to think about what values, what's important to you, mm -hmm. and what kind of lifestyle, activities, jobs could enable you to be true to yourself, to be authentic. Yeah. So yeah. it also reminds me about uh, one of the life-changing books that I read um, a couple of years ago, which was The Courage to be Disliked. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of just, you know, quick summary. <laughs> it's just kind of saying, you know, where you are now, if you're not happy with it, you have to be brave enough to change it. Mm -hmm. You're the person that can make that change. Mm -hmm. So be brave, have courage. And it certainly worked out for me, I have to say. Yeah, and, and the thing is, not everyone is going to like your decisions as you experienced, but that doesn't necessarily matter. You should live a life that is true to yourself um, and not necessarily have to worry what other people think. I mean, definitely don't hurt anyone, but also, like, you know, do we have to worry about offending people necessarily? You know, we might, we might have beliefs that other people don't believe in, but if they choose to be offended by it, then that's kind of their choice. You know, they don't have to have the same beliefs as us, but mm. at the same time, they can't push those beliefs, their beliefs on us. Yes, yes. Yeah. And when you get to university, um, and that's one of the great things about university, you'll meet lots of new people, you'll be confronted with lots of different beliefs, ideas, perspectives, and ideally your lecturers will be challenging you to come up with these types mm -hmm, of things, not mm -hmm. just amongst the people you meet, but around the work that you're doing, the, the research papers you're reading. So you might think, you know, okay, something like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to draw my biological sciences roots yeah. here. So good old Darwin and the <laughs> theory of evolution. 
Yeah, now that's a proven fact, isn't it? Well, some people wouldn't agree with that, but <laughs> um, mostly it's accepted as being really solid, really concrete. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might think, well, it's difficult to look for any holes in this, ask any questions. But did you know that Darwin was actually incredibly sexist? So there was an American female uh, civil rights activist who wrote to him and said, you know, I've read the theory of evolution. Surely it means that women have evolved to be, you know, intelligent. Surely it supports the right for women to be able to choose jobs and have the vote and things along those lines. And he he wrote back very kindly (laughs) and he said, no, it does not. What it does show is that because women don't have to compete for the attention of men, a bit of an assumption there, firstly, they haven't had to evolve at all. So actually they're a bit lazy. Wow. Whereas men, because they have had to compete for the the attention of women, they have. And so that's why men have developed to be so brilliant and intelligent and physical prowess and that type of thing. So if you respected the work of Darwin before, you (laughs) might not now. Well, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm not completely trying to <laughs> blow his theory out of the water, obviously. But knowing that, does it make you look at his research and think, OK, so maybe I should ask some questions when he's talking about the roles of different genders? Yeah, but also if you so as you mentioned before, so even if you, you know, you find it difficult to ask questions about Darwin because his work is so seminal, Coming up with counter-evidence from other sources can be useful in helping you develop your own criticality. So if you haven't made your mind up yet, or if you haven't got the questions to ask, then looking at different alternative sources Mm. can help you by comparison. So when you're asking these types of questions, what you would then do is say, okay, I'm a bit concerned about this, you know, I'm going to look into it, and then find evidence to support your, you know, your suggestions to answer your questions. And and back to back to Darwin's kind of response to this to this woman who wrote to him. We are talking about a time when women were not allowed to publish work, aren't we, Alex? I don't know, are we? Were, were they not allowed to publish work, or was it frequently the case that work that women produced were published under the name of their male yes. supervisors? Yes. Um, so that would probably be the start of the 1900s and the 1950s. Mm. So another <laughs> famous example is um, Rosalind Franklin. Mm. This is what inspired me to go into science, actually. Okay. And my daughter, her middle name, is named after her. So wow. it's a nice, well, yeah. it's a horrible story, actually. When the structure of DNA was discovered in 1957, it was three male scientists who got the credit for it. Francis Crick and James Watson. They studied at Cambridge and they they had a bit of a, I don't know, a casual cavalier attitude towards research. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they managed to convince somebody they knew to basically show them the work of this brilliant female scientist, Rosalind Franklin. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to show them it, you Mm -hmm. know, because she felt it was something quite important and she was very methodical so she was working through you know her first stage and then she was going to go on to the the second bit but um, this guy Morris Wilkinson I think it might be passed it over to Watson and Crick and it it, you know light bulbs uh, flared at that point and they suddenly got you know uh, both the evidence and the Mm -hmm. idea for how Mm -hmm. DNA was structured so of course Oh, guess who got the uh, Nobel Prize for, for it? it? It was um, these three men. 
So do you um, think, so Rosalind Franklin, you said? Yes, yes. So do you think she was reluctant <clears throat> to hand over the work because she knew that was going to happen? I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Or like, at the very least, she felt like she was handing over autonomy to people who had... Yeah, I, I don't know, know p- Perhaps the authority to undermine it or something. Yeah, yeah. That's really um, interesting. And one of the awful things is um, her work was looking at x-ray crystallography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those days, uh, x-rays were pretty damaging for people. We didn't realise as yeah. well. They didn't realise. I believe she died early um, mm-hmm. from some kind of cancer, mm. I would imagine. So the other thing we're touching on here as well is that knowledge is fluid, isn't it? Like, so for example, you know, what people knew about radiography then Mm. and what we know now in terms of its harmful effects. And so the path is not always smooth and plain sailing, is it? To, I mean, success, whatever you might make of it. I mean, to some people, it's, you know, having a successful career, whatever that means to you, a successful life in that, you know, you get to choose how you want to live your life and you know it kind of fulfills your own criteria rather than someone else's preferably so I think something I've picked up from a fellow podcaster is that our success is inevitable and that we are always on the right path and I think that's a really powerful message you know even when things feel a bit shaky and you don't feel like you're on the right path and you come up with setbacks because I mean in your three years at or more of being at university a lot of things can happen I think it's really helpful to have this as a kind of anchor that if you know your success is inevitable and you're always on the right path and everything is brought here to kind of teach you lessons that you can build on, then I think that's quite a healthy way to look at, you know, the sort of setbacks and the ups and downs of what goes on at university life, but also beyond. Yeah, certainly one way of kind of thinking about how the world works. So who's the podcaster? The podcaster is called Catherine Zenkina. Cool. Just thought it was worth it, throwing that name in there. So Tracy, what are your takeaways from this discussion? I like what you said about, you know, how the brain works and how you, did you say that neurons were created, but also like, you know, parts of the brain that we don't use can be destroyed. So I mean, I, you know, like I said, I know the proverbs, use it or lose it, or practice makes perfect. I prefer practice makes progress because what is perfect anyway, but it's really nice to kind of know the scientific evidence for like what all these sayings are based on even though you know I'm sure when whoever came up with them they had no idea about all this neuroscience because this is kind of quite emerging stuff oh but also I think a very useful source because I'm into popular science not the kind of hard evidence that (laughs) you are so in tune to Alex is I've been listening to a book called Evolve Your Brain by Dr. Joe Dispenza and he does touch on a lot of this you know neuroplasticity and you know the idea of you know where attention flows, energy goes. So where you choose to put your attention is where you're going to see results. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fair enough. Mm -hmm. Just a little random fact I thought I'll throw in at this point. Okay. Uh, Sigmund Freud. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. So obviously psychoanalysis is really popular, but he actually came up with an idea of how uh, messages might be passed through the brain. Uh-huh. So the equivalent of, we call them synapses, but the joints between two different neurons where a message is sent across, basically. The other interesting thing is he did all this while he was on cocaine. Okay. <laughs> so does that make you look at his work and then think, oh, maybe we should think very carefully about his fixation on mother figures? <laughs> <laughs> is that 
is that a topic, mother figures? Is this a topic for another podcast episode, I do you think? I think it might be. I think it might be. Right. Okay, then. I think we'll wrap up there for today. <laughs> you have been listening to Weird Learning with Dr. Tracy Dix and Dr. Alex Battelle. Music by Defect Machine from Pixabay. Produced by Kelly Costigan.